Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Now, I am excited to welcome Jim Laurie to the program, Chief Executive Officer at Stanley Black & Decker. The stock has hit an all-time high, and the company has boosted its uh, – 2021 tools and storage organic growth view. I am, Jim, you're probably your target retail customer looking for an <laughs> angle grinder right now. There's nothing I love. Well, there's very there are very few things I love more than power tools. I ride motorcycles a lot, but mainly so that I can work on them. Um, I guess it's probably home improvement, though, that's been driving your business this year. Is that right? Well, that's certainly a, a big part of it. But, you know, we, we do... Uh, we do have some drivers in uh, all around the, the globe, and it's uh, home improvement. It's repurposing homes. It's home starts, housing starts, and uh, economic activity in general, you know, all drive the business. All right. So, Jim, give us a sense of how your business kind of was impacted during the pandemic. Take us to kind of just those, you know, the quarter or two pre-pandemic and then what it's been like since the pandemic. How has your business changed? You know, we had a, a very interesting uh, pre-pandemic situation where you know, it was just kind of normal. And then one day we woke up and uh, sales plummeted by 40 percent. We're down 40 percent for about four continuous weeks in U.S. retail, which is a big part of our business. So uh, it was a little bit scary at that point in time, but we, uh, we kept producing. We remained continuously open and in May, what happened was the point of sale, the uh, cash register receipts, if you will, at the retailers started going positive, and then it went to stratospheric levels in the middle of last year that we'd really never seen before, you know, like up 40, 50 percent. E-commerce was up, you know, 70 percent. It was just crazy numbers. And so fortunately, we had made some bets as we saw this, uh, these cash register receipts uh, going up for tools, and we, we bought $600 million worth of inventory and manufactured $600 million worth of extra inventory to serve that demand. And that, that demand has just continued, you know, at different varying rates. But uh, let me give you a little uh, insight into the first quarter. Uh, you know, the total sales in the tools business were, were up uh, 45% organically. Uh, North America was up 41%. U.S. retail was up 48%. And get this, Europe was up 47%, and the U.K., 80%. And in even the emerging markets, who uh, you, you wouldn't think would be doing so well, they were up 77%, and Latin America up 77%. So it's, it's really, really broad-based market strength. And when we cut well, and you, across the products, you know, power tools were up 50%, hand tools up 28%, and outdoor, outdoor was up 120%. So the hedge trimmers, the shears, the electric shears, <laughs> and those types of things, just a bonanza really across the board well and your long-term growth uh, has been strong as well and i wonder if i look at your next say three to five years do you expect it to pick up from the last three to five years absolutely you know i i've been a c-level exec in this company for uh, 21 years and when i joined we were two billion in revenue and we'll finish this year you know somewhere in the 15 16 billion dollar range our market cap was two billion and it's uh, over 30 now so it's been a long-term growth story as long as I've been here, uh, and even dating back, you know, before that. Uh, 
since our founding in 1843. But in any event, we're excited about the post-pandemic uh, economy, and we're excited about our portfolio because not only do we have, uh, I would say, the construction market coming back, we see a you know, very positive uh, outlook uh, for the U.S. economy, and uh, beyond that, you know, global growth. Uh, and then specifically to Stanley Black & Decker, we are going to uh, execute an option that we have to buy 80% of a company called MTD, which is one of the largest uh, gasoline-powered uh, outdoor power equipment makers of lawnmowers and riding mowers and those types of things. And we're going to – that's about a $3 billion business. And we're going to convert that business using our technology and our know-how in battery power. We're going to convert that and electrify that. So we're going to add billions of dollars of revenue, and we're going to do great things for the environment. Hey, uh, just real quickly, 30 seconds, Jim. I'm looking at uh, the supply chain function on the Bloomberg Terminal, SPLC. I see you've got about more than 80 suppliers out there. Talk to us about the supply chain. Are you getting the stuff you need? We've done really, really well in that regard. However, it's not, it has not been without its challenges. You can imagine you know, an, a largely Asian and Mexican supply chain during a pandemic uh, does have challenges. And we, you know, the three things that are uh, mostly uh, most scarce, I would say, would be uh, batteries, semiconductors, and uh, in some cases, resins. And we're in good shape to continue this kind of growth uh, and this kind of run rate sales uh, with batteries uh, and, and also semiconductors. Uh, and then next, next year and the year beyond, we're going to have to we're going to have to get some more access to semiconductors. Resins were in good shape. Jim, thanks so much for joining us. I know you guys reported really strong numbers uh, last week. Stock at an all-time high. Good time to be in the tool business. Jim Laurie, Chief Executive Officer for Stanley Black & Decker. We appreciate him uh, taking some time there. Again, benefiting from the uh, at-home uh, consumer. Doing some work around the house, I guess. Now, I want to bring in Phil Orlando. He's the Chief Equity Market Strategist and head of client portfolio management at Federated Hermes. They've got about $80 billion in equities under management, firm-wide about $615 billion in assets under management as of kind of the end of last year. Phil, um, you know, a lot's changed since the end of last year, so I'm expecting that number is probably a lot higher now. But how much higher can it get? I mean, have we reached a point when, you know, uh, the market expectations are um, – are, are now uh, high enough for, or the valuations are high enough to meet market expectations? Well, the market is going to reflect corporate earnings. And, you know, the S&P 500 from the bottom of the market March a year ago to where we are now, you know, we hit a record high within the last couple of days. The S&P 500 is up 91%. And there, there have been a lot of folks that have been scratching their heads saying, how can the market be doing this well um, we, we had, you know, the, the deepest recession in history. And, and the reason is that the equity market is a forward-looking discount mechanism, which attempts to price in what they think is going to happen six or nine months later. So here we are now in the first quarter, earnings season. We're about two-thirds of the way through. Earnings were expected to be up about 23% year-on-year, according to FactSet. They're up 51%. Yeah. Well, I mean, Phil, this is the interesting thing. I mean, I have never seen companies knock the cover um, so far off the ball as they have this earnings season. In fact, 
Um, the last I looked, S&P companies are beating expectations by 90%. You know, almost all of the companies out are beating the street's estimates, and yet um, we haven't seen stocks move a lot in the past few days. Analysts are saying, thank you very much. We, or, or investors are saying, thank you very much. We expected that. You know, what, what can you do for me now? Well, that, that's exactly the point. This 91% rally has priced in some of this gain. The second quarter, the quarter that just started, that we're going to report in July, we think the earnings are going to be up another 60 65%. Now, that could represent the peak of the cycle in terms of rate of growth. So we may continue to grind earnings up second half of this year, all of next year, but the quarter-on-quarter, year-on-year pace of that increase may start to decline. Um, so, so that's the, the interesting inflection point they're going to be watching right now. We still think the market's going to 4,500, but we may get to 4,500 by August as opposed to December, based upon the strength of the earnings recovery that corporate America right now is enjoying. Phil, uh, give us a sense of your concern about inflation, because we certainly are seeing inflation uh, coming into this market, whether you look at the soft commodities, hard commodities, oil you know, rallying here. Um, the Fed and Chairman Powell saying, hey, it's just transitory, don't worry about it. But uh, I think there's some growing chatter about the concerns for inflation, what that might mean for the Fed uh, going forward. What are your thoughts? We think the Fed is being – they're whistling past the graveyard here on inflation. Uh, we just saw the core PCE on Friday go from 1.4% year-on-year core in February to 1.8% in March. That number is going to keep going up based upon this procedural base effect as we drop off the low inflation readings from a year ago. That number is going to be somewhere between, let's call it 25 and 3% over the next couple of months. Now, the Fed at that point is saying, don't worry about it. It'll plateau. It'll roll over. Given the spike in commodity prices and the significant increase in labor costs yep. that the companies are going to have to pay in order to get workers off the sidelines to take their jobs back, and then the price increases, they're going to pass those labor costs on to us in the form of higher consumer prices. All of that, in our view, is going to start to filter into core inflation. So, so, and, and the Fed is locked in that they're not going to make a policy change until – you know, the end of calendar 23 at the earliest. So I think we're, we're at an inflection point on the Fed here as well. At what point does the Fed blink and recognize that maybe inflation's a little bit of a problem here and that they're going to have to change policy, either tapering or moving interest rates higher earlier than the beginning of calendar 24? Phil, what asset class do you like if inflation is not transitory, wh- so, where do you put your money? I heard a fixed income strategist this morning tell me junk bonds, but that's a little too risky for my blood. Well, and I'm not the bond guy. I'm the equity guy. And, <laughs> and, and basically what you want are companies that have pricing power that are leveraged to this improvement in the economy. So we think that the value stocks, which we've been playing since last August, financials, uh, energy, industrials, uh, 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 consumer discretionary uh, materials. The, the, these are the companies that are that are producing the outsized gains because the economy is growing so strongly, and the valuation gap between growth and value is still significant enough that I think that the, the value trade ought to continue to work. Love it, Phil. Great to get. Uh, your input. Really appreciate you stopping by for a bit. Phil Orlando there, as I said, Chief Equity Market Strategist 
also head of client portfolio management over at Federated Hermes. And Paul, as you were, you were telling me this morning, Phil has been uh, bullish and he's been right. He has been, and uh, you know it's interesting. He's got this that rotation trade very much uh, in play here, and he's going to ride that out. So it's been a good trade, um, and I think a lot of investors are feeling, you know, this has got some more room to run here as long as the Fed stays on the sidelines and this economy continues to reopen. We can see more legs there. Time for Bloomberg opinion today. We're joined by Tara LaChapelle. She covers entertainment telecommunications and deals for Bloomberg Opinion. And I'll tell you, if you have an interest in media like I do in the convergence of media and technology and cord cutting and streaming and all that cool stuff, Tara's work is an absolute must read. And she's out with another fantastic column today talking about Netflix. And Tara, you're suggesting that Netflix, you know, they haven't really bought anything. They've just kind of built their company up from scratch, investing in their in their business, investing in their programming. But you're suggesting maybe they should take a look at buying an existing media company? Which one and why? Right. So I think that they should look at Discovery and, and not just Netflix, the other streaming giants, you know, Apple, um, maybe not so much Disney doesn't really fit their family-friendly programming, but, you know, Amazon Prime, any of them, because I think what's missing now from the streaming universe is reality TV programming, which, you know, maybe Discovery's content on, you know, TLC, things like that, are considered kind of like the lowest rung of television art. But at the same time, a lot of people enjoy it. And I think it also is that type of content that you can just turn on the TV and it's background noise while you're maybe scrolling your phone or making dinner. And I think that's really missing from streaming and there's value in being able to provide that. So I think if Netflix is smart and if these other companies are smart, they start to see that there's a hole there. And it would make an awful lot of sense to fill because this kind of programming is not expensive to make and it really you know, pays dividends. Yeah. I mean, if, if Tiger King isn't the lowest rung <laughs> of creating art, I feel like they've already gone there. Um, and that program was extraordinarily successful, right? And meanwhile, Discovery has, for me at least, they've got the uh, Top Gear America, which is um, reality <laughs> programming that I absolutely love. What what else has Discovery got on offer? They have a they have really a, a wide um, offering of of programming. Top Gear comes from Motor Trend, but Discovery owns that. Yeah, they have a ton. Um, you know, aside from Motor Trend, there's TLC with uh, 90 Day Fiance is their big show right now. And David Zaslav, the CEO of Discovery, is kind of mused before that it's like their Sunday night football. It airs on Sunday nights, and it just gets tons of viewers. And I think what's interesting about 90 Day Fiance and some of the, their other programs, they have a Chopped on Food Network. There's Naked and Afraid on the Discovery Channel. Obviously, HGTV has a ton of hit programming. Um, I, I think what's different about them is that these are franchises. So you look at something like Tiger King and some of the other uh, forays Netflix has made into reality shows. None of them have been franchises. And Discovery just kind of keeps building on these brands. And it's funny because they don't really have stars behind them. They're just mostly regular people that they're filming in these cases. And, you know, 90 Day Fiance, they're just following around Americans who are trying to bring over their fiancés from abroad on K-1 visas. And, you know, it, it, it's really like, you know, low budget programming, but it's wildly entertaining to a lot of people. And it, it caters to spinoffs and extras and reunion shows, basically gifts that keep on giving for Discovery. All right. So, Tara, I, you know, I know Discovery Communications very well. And one of the key things about that company is that its control shareholder is John Malone. What do we know about 
Dr. Malone's feelings about discovery and perhaps selling this company should should a bona fide offer come along? You know, it's funny. I think John Malone and David Zaslav are the two executives that are always willing to kind of pitch their own companies for sale anytime they go out to the media or their yep. conferences. They, they seem to always be like open to that idea. And they're almost kind of asking for offers. <laughs> and I, I wouldn't, I think that if they got one, they definitely would consider it. I think that, you know, John Malone is a deal maker at heart. And I think that he's, you know, always been kind of open to selling at the right price. And especially now, given his age and trying to kind of tidy up his portfolio, I imagine that they would be willing sellers. Um, I think it's just a matter of when these other media companies feel ready to make a big bet like this and, and see the value in it. And I think more and more Discovery is proving its value. In the case of Netflix, it really wasn't financially in the position to do major acquisitions. And it's just starting to get to the point where they're saying they're going to be cash flow positive starting next year. So maybe they now have the wherewithal to be able to think about making acquisitions, especially as they see their own subscriber growth really start to slow. When I was a kid, we used to call John Malone the Darth Vader of cable. I can't remember <laughs> why, but um, as you point out, Tara, he's he's getting older and maybe looking to wrap up his legacy here. What if Netflix doesn't take Discovery? Is there another buyer out there who would want them? I think it would make sense for any of the streaming companies that are really lacking in the kind of content that we did enjoy about cable. So I think of Apple TV+. Plus. It's very focused around you know, specific shows and movies with big actors in it. And it's kind of, you know, you watch it and then that's it. You forget about it. I think they need something that keeps people coming back. These kinds of programs do that. Amazon Prime doesn't really have a whole lot there. Um, but also, you know, a company that always comes up when you talk about discovery is Viacom CBS. Um, I don't see the logic as much there, but I think it's it's a case where because they're kind of the also rans in this industry, People see them, you know, they should get together and they'll be stronger together. So there's there's that argument. Um, but I, I think, you know, Netflix, if they want to stay on top, this is something that's really missing. And it fits really well because Discovery is also a very international company. And that's something that's important to Netflix. So I think it, it probably makes the most sense for them. But any of these companies should be looking at them. Um, you know, so much of the takeover speculation in the industry is focused on Hollywood movie houses. Yeah. I think... You know, that doesn't really help them that much. I think something like this would, would pay off a little bit better in the long run. Tara, have we heard anything from Reed Hastings, the CEO of uh, Netflix, about their willingness or appetite for any type of acquisitions? I, not a whole lot on that front. And again, I think maybe that has to do with them just trying to get to the point where they could prove to investors and the naysayers that they are a financially viable company and now they've gotten there. Um, but also, you know, they get asked a lot about whether they would expand into other things like gaming. Um, I brought up the idea of them getting into consumer product licensing. Um, but they haven't really been specific about what's next, which kind of makes you wonder what they could be thinking about. But um, acquisitions come up whenever a company's growth is starting to slow. And Netflix is now kind of a mature company in that sense. And so you could imagine that they're starting to have those conversations that companies like Disney have had, you know, for years. Tara, the, you, your article, and Matt, this is funny. When I first read Tara's article this morning, I said, uh-oh, investment bankers are hitting the phones today <laughs> because I think Tara's uh, kind of raises a lot of questions here. Yeah, interesting. Uh, interesting how Bloomberg opinion columns can sometimes spark deals, but, I mean, her her, uh, her logic isn't flawed, and it's probably something, hopefully something that investment bankers thought of as well. Otherwise, 
I think Tara could be in for a pretty big payday if she were to <laughs> That's right. switch over to the dark side. Tara LaChapelle there from Bloomberg Opinion. Check out her work by typing O-P-I-N go on the Bloomberg or look at Bloomberg.com slash opinion. This is Bloomberg. We're about halfway through this earnings season. Another big week. Uh, this week, and uh, the earnings are coming in very strong, and that's what this market needed. Let's see uh, how uh, some strategists are thinking about that. Scott Wren, he's a senior global market strategist for Wells Fargo Investment Institute. Scott, thanks so much for joining us here. You know, there was a strong argument to be made that this first quarter earnings season really had to come in strong to justify the valuation in this marketplace. Do you think corporate America has come through so far? Well, I really do, Paul. But I, I tell you, I think really the way I look at most earnings season and even this one is, you know, this is more of a confirmation process. I mean, it's the last thing that happens in the entire earnings process is it's, it's reported to the street. So the street expected uh, good earnings growth. We've certainly uh, had that. Uh, we know we're going to get some really good uh, economic growth here. So it, this is more of a, of a confirmation step in my mind, but certainly this has been a really good earnings season. I always look at this from two different uh, angles. Um, on the one hand, Scott, you know, companies are doing great. They're bouncing back from, to be fair, you know, pretty low base effects. On the other hand, analysts got it wrong um, they they undervalued uh, or, or underbid these companies' earnings reports. Nearly ninety percent of S and P five hundred firms beat estimates. What are the analysts doing? Something wrong? Are they not updating their expectations? Are they, you know, working from home? What's the story? <laughs> well, I, I tell you, Matt, th this is my bias. I think as a strategist, is a lot of times individual company analysts, you know, they they are really glued to company guidance. And if you think back, what what's happened over the last year, uh, and and really in a lot of earnings seasons, you know, these these companies are are very cautious. They don't want to give uh, a, a very aggressive outlook. You know, that's why sixty five or seventy percent in any earnings season season beat, but. That, that's the situation. The guidance is, is very conservative. We know from economists, and certainly our economists uh, that, we, that we talk to with our group, um, are expecting big things. But these companies aren't going to go out on a limb too far. And then the analysts become really glued to that guidance and therefore, you know, their way under what the actual results would be, too. So it's kind of an odd sort of a circle, but it happens with such regularity that when you have something like this pandemic, it gets even worse. All right, Scott. So we've seen, um, you know, the rotation trade into cyclical stocks, even uh, into smaller cap stocks uh, as well, really perform well almost almost for a year now. What's your take on that allocation or, or, or that move in, in that side of the market versus maybe the more traditional growth areas? Where are you uh, kind of focused right now? Well, I will say that in this particular cycle, our view is that growth is going to not fade relative to value as as much as maybe a normal cycle. Now, saying that, you know, we're in a cycle, we're, we're in a new cycle that at least we believe we are, where the stock market's likely to see some, some, some multi-year gains here. Um, you know, small caps, as people are more willing to take on risk, you know, they're going to buy value. Uh, they're going to buy small caps. That's certainly what's happened. So, we're, you know, we're leaning into small caps. Uh, we, we like, you know, industrials, uh, materials, um, uh, financials, those kinds of things. So, so while all these cycles are different, 
and this one, you know, is is odd, as was the last one. You know, some of these recurring themes that you see, value does well, small caps do well, uh, things like that, cyclicals do well as the economy comes out of the hole. You know, these things hold true even in this cycle. So we're leaning toward, we want our clients to be assertive. Uh, we want them to be leaning towards a continuation of this recovery, not just here, but also abroad. We think Europe will catch up after they get their act together with this vaccine. And, you know, we like those areas. And I think at least, um, you know, for the intermediate term, it's going to, to remain like that. I got my appointment, by the way. Oh, you do? Big oh. announcement. In, May in 18th. Because I'll tell you why. Because You're in Berlin. Um, Germany counts. Uh, I live in Berlin because Germany counts journalists among um, the third group that uh, ah. gets priority, prioritized. Um, we're now kicking off so I can go to press conference. Press, I always thought press it was priority, Matt, and, so. Thank, thank Matt, you. Matt, you are, assen- you are essential, Matt. <laughs> that, thank, thank, thank you so, so much. I feel so, I feel pretty essential. In any case, um, <laughs> I was just thinking, you know, Scott, you've been saying this for a while that the U.S. economy is going to bounce back strong. Everyone knows it's red hot, as Warren Buffett said, but you don't, you don't know if we're going to get a strong bounce back necessarily in Europe. Um, is it, is it a good time to go bargain hunting to go look for um you know the bounce back that is going to come well i think as far as the globe goes you know we we're also overweight uh favorable on emerging markets you know china china taiwan south korea they've done well um I, i think you know they appear to have you know their vaccine act together so to speak certainly global trade's pretty good but we have not been favorable on a developed international which would include include you know obviously the eurozone the eu uh, japan those types of of countries so we don't think it's time yet but um but certainly it's something that we talk about every week in the investment strategy committee but as far as international goes right now uh we want to lean more toward uh toward emerging markets Scott, thanks so much for joining us. Senior global market strategists are in the fourth group, by the way. So uh, you'll be able to get your vaccine if you come here, Scott, in in June. Scott ran there from Wells Fargo, Wells Fargo Investment Institute, talking to us about how they want to play this market. And uh, soon, Paul, it's just going to be consensus that um, the strength in the U.S. economic bounce back is not to be denied. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.